Watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge Hey everybody, welcome to a special interview edition of the Binge Movie Podcast I'm Jason Leroy I'm Rebecca Olarte And today we're gonna take a listen to Jason's interview With director Jeff Nichols from the movie Midnight Special um, Let's play a little bit about from the trailer of Midnight Special first, shall we? Yes Police issued an Amber Alert for an eight-year-old boy it's time, you ready? Yeah. Okay. Very moody. So many questions. So many questions. So this movie is written and directed by Jeff Nichols. It's his fourth film. Um, his first was called Shotgun Stories. His second was Take Shelter, uh, which is the first of his that I had seen. It starred Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain. Mm. Michael Shannon has been in all of his movies, by the way. Mm. He is the De Niro to Nichols Scorsese. <laughs> um, after that uh, was the movie that really put Nichols on a lot of people's radar, which is Mud. With Matthew McConaughey. With Matthew McConaughey, Reese Witherspoon, Sarah Paulson, our girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Mud opened a lot of doors for him, and that led to Midnight Special, which is by far his biggest and most ambitious movie to date. It's a big budget studio film. Oh, well, not even a big budget. Not I think big for him maybe, but um, so it's it was, not Transformers. It's, it's a studio finance, a studio finance, big studio film, and uh, with a with a much bigger uh, scope than his previous work. Um, and uh, Jeff Nichols, as we talk about in this interview, he's he's the kind of director who has managed to emerge in the American film landscape as like an auteur. Mm. Uh, which is hard to do. It's harder and harder to do. And I think that whenever someone actually, like, their kind of, their persistence and their perseverance pay off, and, like, they didn't take the cheap, easy way out, they didn't do the obvious desperate thing, they hung in there, they they did what felt right to them and to their artistry, and, and, and for it to actually pay off right. is almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Nichols has managed to do that so far. You know, he did these three independent films, each bigger and better than the last. And then he managed to get Warner Brothers to sign on to finance and bankroll his fourth film. And not only that, he was able to negotiate Final Cut with them. Oh. Which is, again, like... Final Cut Pro, the uh, software that you need yeah, to use to make Yeah, they, they got them to buy that for him. It's real nice. Awesome. Real you generous. It's all he asked iTunes, for. Like, or, uh, iMovie, like mud. He's a cheap date. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's... Oh, we talk about this in the interview as well, but, I mean, it's like, for a studio to hand over Final Cut is big. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Because studios are very, very protective of their films and of like wanting to have every last bit of control over the final product, so they feel like it's the you know maximized for for you know for uh, profitability. revenue profitability. Yeah. Uh, so and uh, and Jeff Nichols is also um, his his filmmaking technique, which we speak to in this in this uh, interview as well, is it's very much about kind of trusting the audience to make connections. Love that. Yeah. So it's all about it's all about showing and not telling. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Midnight Special is very much that way. Like, I'm not going to say very much in this intro about what the movie is about. Mm-hmm. Because when you watch the movie, like, you don't know what it's about. Like, it gradually reveals itself to you and it trusts you to figure it out and to, like, pick up on, like, the each piece of the puzzle that it kind of gives to you. Um, the basic premise is that we have this young boy uh, named Alton Meyer who is, uh, seems to have been abducted. Uh, by his father, played by Michael Shannon, mm-hmm. 
and then a friend of his father is played by Joel Edgerton. And he has been abducted from a cult that held the boy up as some kind of like messianic figure. Mm -hmm. And the father and friend have taken this boy on the road um, for a destination that we are not aware of, for reasons we're not aware of. And uh, along the way, they encounter the boy's mother, who's played by Kirsten Dunst. Meanwhile, the cult people are kind of on their tail trying to get the boy back. Mm. Sam Shepard plays the head of the cult. Oh. And then also the FBI are interested. And there's an agent who's played by Adam Driver. Oh, Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Uh, so these are, this is sort of the cast of characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won't say more about what the movie's about beyond that. So, um, But... He he's just I feel like he's the kind of director we're going to be talking about like decades from now. Oh, that's so exciting! Um, I, it's it's so I I couldn't have been more excited to talk to him, and uh, and and we had a, a cool little one on one chat. Um, one of the funny things is that when you look at his filmography, Take Shelter, he talks about, and I think he says this in the interview, was a film that he made when he was getting ready to become a father. So it was very mm. much his sort of anxiety about the world he's bringing his his child into. Because that movie is about a man who is having these sort of like apocalyptic dreams and visions mm-hmm. um, that are disrupting his like sort of like banal everyday suburban life. Um, that he just can't shake the sense that gets stronger and stronger that like something terrible is coming. Right. And uh, in this movie, you know, it's about it's he's made it well into become being a father. And it's about the father trying to like figure out how to have a child in this world and how to like kind of understand that separation a parent needs to feel like I can't actually live my child's life mm-hmm. i need to let them be who they are um and he finds such artful ways of telling these stories and very imaginative and very intelligent and uh and i, I yeah i i just i was really i was really excited to talk to him well this interview is fantastic um enjoy and, and uh, we'll... this this movie is our pick of the week by the way it is our pick of the week um and we'll see you on the other side yep enjoy guys thanks for taking the time to talk to me today i really appreciate it my pleasure uh huge fan of your work uh so this is awesome <laughs> well good that makes the conversation better than like yeah the ending meh yeah. <laughs> which yeah. you still can say it's like a list of things i'm going to criticize about your film and you can agree or disagree you can still say it. <laughs> so this is your fourth time putting movie out into the world uh, yeah. how's the experience been this time around compared to the first three it's taken a long time you know um i had this film finished uh, last June and so you know I kind of had to it's been like this zen thing of like it's there the world will discover it when it needs it mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of the most most that's the feeling I've been living with the most huh. now that it's out um, it's a slow sense of relief you know um, it's obviously good you know you start to look at reviews and things mm-hmm. and we had our first, you know, numbers, box office numbers this weekend and everything. And it's like, it seems like people for the most part are liking it yeah. and, um, <clears throat> and and going to see it. And it's kind of like you just, it's like backing away from like a wolf's den or something. Like, it's like, okay, I think we made it. I think we made it out alive. Um, <laughs> because you never know, you know, like these films, um, it's not like when I set out to make them, I think, well, this is going to be a home run, you know, um, I haven't designed them that way. It, it almost feels like they're just, they just kind of spring out of me. And, uh, and I, and I haven't been calculating in, um, in trying to target success. Right. Uh, I just really been trying to 
tell these things that are really personal to me in a way that hopefully people will enjoy and go see. Um, and so, but as a result of that, it never feels like the release is, a, is the um, culmination of a, a plan well executed. It just kind of, it always feels like like a dare, like an experiment, you know. Um, maybe not for my next film, but, um, but for this one, for sure. For loving, it doesn't seem that is the same way. No, loving is uh, loving. Number one, it's not mine, so I feel like I can, I can brag on it more without okay. it sounding arrogant. <laughs> when you say it's not yours, you mean because you didn't? It's based on a real story. Right, right, right. I wrote the yeah. script. Yeah, okay. and so it is. You know, it's it's it's, but it's not a Jeff Nichols film in the same same sense. You mm-hmm. know, just because it's not cut from old creative cloth. Right, right. But also, it's it's not open ended. It it is it is their story. And their story is beautiful, and it fits. Uh, it fits, you know, um, out in the world. I can see it. I can see how that movie, why that movie is important, and why that movie plays out in the world easier than any of my others. Um, which is great, and that will be a fun experience to have. But for this film, and for for the others, it's always been even with Mud, which I I cast as a kind of classic American film. Um, like a feel-good film to a degree. Um, I knew it's. I knew it. I knew it had some gangly legs and some, you know, and a big Adam's apple and some strange things going on. And and it wasn't. Um, it wasn't a surefire thing. None of them have been. I was thinking about the way that Midnight Special sort of an allegory about you know a parent releasing their child sort of into the world and and letting go of of what their destiny and their fate will be. Sure. Uh, does that also apply to being a filmmaker and putting your films out into the world and being like, they'll, good, they'll be what they'll be? It, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think this movie talks about parenthood in a way that, that you have no direct control over them. Right. They, they become who they become. Um, and, it, and, and there's this beautiful tragedy that's baked into them in that you know they'll always leave. Like, that's the way it goes. Um, and you could certainly apply that to films. I have more control over what they become than I do over my son. <laughs> but um, but at some point they're not yours. Right. You know, I remember uh, I was speaking with one of the executives uh, at Warner Brothers when we were working on the contract stage, and they were making sure everybody had sequel options in their contracts, which is just a thing they do now, yeah. like just in case, More like ever place. since The Hangover. It's oh, yeah. like, <laughs> make sure because you never know. And um, and so, and I remember speaking to him and saying, hey, look, you know, if anybody gives you any trouble, though, just tell me, because I'm in charge. I'm in charge of this universe, and and I'll just, I can write away from them. If they, if they don't want to be involved, let's not force them. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, Jeff, you're not in charge. He's like, the audience is in charge. He's like, when they see a film, and if they want to see that character again... You have no control over that. And at oh, wow. first, you know, I was like, wait, wait a second. Yeah, hold on. Wait, wait. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, son of a bitch, he's right. <laughs> like, um, like you give these things up yeah. to to the world. And and hopefully, and this is a tangential point from that, mm-hmm. hopefully you, you, you know, and that's really what you should want to do. Like um, Flannery O'Connor mm. said, and I'm paraphrasing, but the best writing at some point essentially does more than what the writer intended 
it starts to live outside of their consciousness. Right. It, 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 it attaches itself to the zeitgeist. It, it attaches itself to some collective thought. Right. And that's nearly impossible to do. And if you can be fortunate enough to write something that, that attaches to that, Take Shelter, I think, got close. It's mm-hmm. maybe the closest thing I'll ever do. Like, to, to just this, this general zeitgeist. Um, that's why I'm always amazed by Richard Linklater. Mm. Uh, like, he's hit the zeitgeist, like, a couple times. And that's crazy, you know? Like that's, He lives on the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah like, he's just... Good. Yeah, like, uh, it, it's something I marvel at. Uh, it seems like we're now officially in this point where when critics write about your films, they talk about the Jeff Nichols style and mm-hmm. that's the hallmark of a Jeff Nichols film. And then that, how does that make you feel? Do you feel connected to that conversation or is that just outside of you and you're like, well, that's for them to talk about? Well, it's certainly flattering. And I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> and I appreciate it because I, I think a lot about, um, the writing of these films, you know, um, I really do. Like I spend years writing these things, so I'm glad that that when they come out, they have some some massive part of me that's that's very recognizable in them. But that's really about the writing, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of what they write about is the writing. Um, but the writing dictates all of the directing too. But what it discounts is this group of people that helped me make these. Mm-hmm. That um, and maybe it doesn't discount it, but it doesn't fully involve acknowledge them. it. Yeah, which is. You take Adam Stone out of the equation, which has shot all five of my films now. You take Chad Keith, my production designer, or Sarah Green, my producer. Um, you take them out of the equation, David Wingo, my composer. Mm-hmm. They stop feeling like quote unquote Jeff Nichols films. You know, so you have to, I think it's important to pause in all of this revelry and say, <laughs> Great, thank you very much. I'm very flattered. Um, but but these people, we make these things together. Now that's not to say Adam would go shoot a film. For someone else, and it would feel like one of my films, but there's this there's this great concoction that happens um, between artists when they when they mingle, you know, Mike Shannon and I, and, right. and it, it it's um and it makes something new, you know, this plus this equals that, and um and that's really nice to see because Mike, not just Mike, but these other people, like they're my they're my family, you know, we we go and live together for five months at a time and make these things and uh, and they've seen me tired and they've seen me angry and weak and powerful and confident they've seen me in all these different ways and uh, and they've grown with me since shotgun stories really Adam mainly but it's like we've it's like we've made it through the gauntlet together and um, and it's a it's 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 it, my success is theirs, you know, is, yeah. is the way I feel. Yeah. Uh, well, talking about the writing, uh, one of the main things that gets singled out in when people talk about the Jeff Nichols style is the storytelling style of, mm-hmm. you know, gradually revealing itself. And, and uh, I was wondering if there were experiences that you just had as a viewer that made you feel like that was the better way to go about it, to trust the audience and to have things reveal themselves rather than, you know, showing instead of telling. Examples on the screen are few and far between because when it's done right, you don't notice it. Mm. You know, you really only notice it when it's done incorrectly. Right. And there, and there, you know, lots of those yes. examples. Yeah. Um, none that I'll, I can even think to bring up, but we know they exist. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of, <clears throat> you know, but like, if if I just look at the films I love, 
it ha- they have to be in there. You know, if you look at the dialogue in The Hustler, for instance, it's a Paul Newman film I'm a big fan of. Yeah. Like the way they speak. And that was back in the 60s where you would still get some pretty melodramatic monologues, you know, kicking out. But they all felt born of character. You know, they all felt like they were trying, the dialogue was trying to wrap its hands around the throat of some bigger idea. Not just around backstory and plot. Mm -hmm. And I think in an age where all these movies get tested, all these movies... Um, are, are very much designed to, to hit a specific type of audience. Right. There's so much emphasis put on plot and so much emphasis put around, you know, clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if clarity was a solution, you know, for narrative drive. Narrative drive is this, is this very real thing. Mm-hmm. Narrative drive is that feeling when you're, you're sitting in the theater and you, you want to know what happens next. Yeah. You have ideas maybe of what's going to happen next, but you're not totally sure. But, you, but regardless, you want to know. You don't get up to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so my kind of challenge as a writer is to think about what creates narrative drive, not what creates narrative clarity, right. not even what creates narrative efficiency, which is what I focus a lot on. But what, what just makes people want more? It's kind of the cliffhanger strategy, yeah. you know, of, and that's why I marvel at shows like, you know, Game of Thrones and, you know, pretty much any success, House of Cards, whatever it is, you're like, you just want to hit play. It's why binge watching is so good. But so how do I create a film in two hours that, that within it have those, those benchmarks? You know, it's, it, I feel like it's almost easier in episodic television because you're like, well, then just end with cliffhanger. But that's not how the narrative structure of a film works. So how, how do you, within a film, um, drive, that, drive those narrative questions? <clears throat> and my solution is never a blanket one. It always seems to be dependent on those characters. Because you're serving, two, you're, serving, you're serving two masters at once. You know, you're serving the master of narrative drive. Mm-hmm. And then you're also serving the believability of these characters, their behavior has to be true mm-hmm. um, or else it, it, it takes me out. And, 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 and true behavior and character um, defines everything for me it, and, and it extends to their wardrobe and their shoes and the cars they drive and the clothes. So, okay, I, I'm not allowed to just make something happen that, that causes a question. I have to have it like bubble up out of these people in this organic way. Mm-hmm. And that is why making movies is really awesome mm-hmm. because every situation is different. Every scene is different. Every moment is different. And you have to be accountable to the character in that moment and the movie that you're telling. Um, and I don't know. That's, that's, that's fun. I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you how I do it mm-hmm. um, other than to say all that stuff is floating around <laughs> when, I, when I am doing it. You know, I'm conscious of those yeah. requirements. Um, and then I just think about the specificity of the moment. It seems like a, it's a very, it's a very literary approach that, that, that you have. And, and have you written, have you written a novel? I haven't. I would be terrible at it. You know, you I think so? I started off writing short stories. I think I could write short stories, maybe yeah. in the novella. Uh-huh. <clears throat> my problem there, whenever I would sit down to do that, <clears throat> excuse me, I would, um, point of view always got me. Mm. Um, you know, do I write it from a character's point of view? Do I make it an omniscient point of view? And I could never decide which I wanted. Mm-hmm. 
But through the course of kind of becoming a student of, of screenwriting and of the screenwriting format, mm. which is very unique, yeah. um, and this is me bragging, like I've gotten pretty good at that <laughs> format. Like I, I can... Like I can dash that off yeah, and I feel right. very comfortable in it, mainly because I'm, I've gotten better at directing, I think as well. And I know, I know how important point of view is within those scenes and, and it just makes sense to me. It just makes sense to me when to go where mm-hmm. inside a scene and with whom. Yeah. And I think, I think that it's just what I was meant to do. It's what I've spent my life figuring out how to do. And it is, you know, it, it would be a much different paintbrush or or trade to, to pick up a, a novel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you had Final Cut on this film. I did. Uh, which, of course, sounds like the dream. Yeah. Uh, were there any downsides to it or just any yeah. especially daunting about it? Or Well, downsides, yes, but <clears throat> what's interesting when you're awarded Final Cut, because they give it to you. Right. Um, you don't take it. Mm-hmm. And um, and they can take it away from you if they really want to. I mean, come on. They have more lawyers than I have. <laughs> um, but what happens is this, this accountability immediately kicks in. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being this rigid, you know, rock of, of a person that is trying to deflect all of these studio notes. All of a sudden, their notes become very important mm-hmm. because they're just one more viewer that you need to attend to mm-hmm. and you know notes are notes everybody's got an opinion you know that whole thing but they're kind of like reading tea leaves you really need to understand what people want out of those and I think as a filmmaker and a storyteller it's my responsibility not to just disregard them mm-hmm. you know uh, it's not my way or the highway it, it really is like okay what are people not getting out of this film mm-hmm. um, what do they think they need do they really need that um, or is that a symptom of some other problem? And and constantly going back to the like foundational principles of the script. Like I didn't write this to be a four quadrant successful film. I think there were a lot of things in it that when Warner Brothers first saw it, they were like, "This could be a really successful film if you did this, 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 and this." Right. But but it wasn't built that way. And you know, I I imagine it like a, a patient on a table with veins running running all through it. Mm-hmm. And you can't, it's not plug and play. You can't just pull a puzzle piece out right. without disrupting this, this you know, this neural network right. that's running through your film, if it was written correctly. Yeah. So Final Cut, it is, it, it makes you immediately accountable, I think in a good way. I think it makes me more collaborative. Really? Um, I do. But also, it's, a, it's the nuclear option. You know, it is... I don't want to have to hit that button. You hit that button and it's like, it's assured destruction, you know, mutual destruction. Yeah. They'll just bury the film. Right. You want the people that paid for your movie to like it. Yeah. You want the people that are paying to market your movie to like it and to understand it. And, and you ultimately want audiences to like it. Now, the, the freedom that Final Cut gives me is that this thing that I sat for years writing and crafting is going to come out the way I intended it to. That's kind of the, that's the get out of jail free card. It's like, um, I think the worst torture for me would be to have someone force me to change something. Mm. The film go into the world, do poorly, and me always wonder, 
That I can't live with. What I can live with is me sticking by my guns and saying, no, you don't get to find out what happens at the end of this movie. And people knocking that. And people saying, well, he got that wrong. It's not Spielbergian enough. It's not this. It's not that. <laughs> great. Like, great. I'll take that all day long, you know. Um, but but I couldn't stand the other. So. It's the preferable option. Yeah. Nobody can live with. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the first time that you had a movie where you did, like, a cameo by a major media personality, mm-hmm. this time being Nancy Grace. Yeah, right. I, I we actually had a few people from, from Headline News yeah. show up very graciously. Um, yeah, I talked to her on the phone. It was really <laughs> funny. Uh, I think she had seen Mud. I think she liked Mud. Uh-huh. And she was, you know, she was firing a mile a minute. I was like, I'm such a big fan. Okay, here we go. And then she said, now listen. Did these guys really do this? I was like, what do you mean? She was like, did they really kidnap this boy? Because they're always talking to me about that I, you know, how I get things wrong and, and like I'm not, you know, yeah. that um, I jumped to conclusions. I forget exactly how she phrased it. Um, I said, well, <laughs> technically, yes, they did kidnap this boy, but there's more to the story. She was like, hmm. okay, well, I'm going to do it for you. Because I like you. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, it kind of made me, it made me laugh. She was very generous. She wanted to know how much certainty she should have in her, uh, in her delivery of the lines. Yes. Is that what it was? I don't know. You know <laughs> no, she just did her thing. I didn't direct her or anything. She, she, she did it exactly the way she would do it. It was really funny when they told me that, that we might be able to um, get Nancy Grace. I was like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> that's who it would be. You know, that's who it would be. Yeah, it felt, it was a very authentic detail. <laughs> it was like, of course, Nancy Grace would be reporting on the kidnapping of a child. Yes. That yes. makes perfect sense. Yeah. She is their advocate. She is. She is. Thank goodness. Yes. Uh, so it's now trendy to cast Michael Shannon in every movie. Oh, it is? You were doing it before it was trendy. <laughs> uh, you know, what do you think you, you saw in him that now everyone else is seeing and everyone wants a piece? <laughs> he can do anything, you know, is the reality. That's why I think he's... You know, you're seeing him. I had a DGA Q&A last night with Jonathan Levine, mm. um, who put him in his Seth Rogen Christmas movie. Right, yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I think people are just realizing, you know, he's got the chops. Like, it's it's not a joke. It's not, uh, you know, it didn't just happen. Like, he's there, and if you're looking for something interesting, give that guy a call, right. you know. Now you have the issue of can you get in, in on his schedule? Right. But me too, myself included. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I just think he's the real deal. You know, uh, there's no other way to answer it other than that. Yeah. And and it, we're finally seeing the um, uh, maybe a broader appreciation of it. But you know, people have been saying Mike Shan's great forever. Mm-hmm. Like I've never heard anybody be like it would have been better without Mike. <laughs> no. Like never has that ever happened. No. You know. Yeah. And so. To me, it's kind of the same conversation I've been having for a decade. Mm. But cool. Uh, sure. Uh, seeing seeing him in the motel room in the beginning and, and throughout the film was giving me bug flashbacks, which which then was kind of almost traumatic. <laughs> but uh, so this is your second film to have children as key figures. Uh, as, as, as main characters. And I was wondering if there's anything about stories about children that you find especially compelling. Well, it's interesting. It, the way to answer that is um, these things are all reflections of my life mm-hmm. at, different, at the different times you find me making them. So Mud was very much um, 
about me as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that's why the point of view character was that boy. But Take Shelter and Midnight Special are very much about me as a father. So, which obviously you need the component of the children for that. So it's not so much that they're the cornerstone of what I think good storytelling is. They just happen to be kind of the cornerstone of my life mm. in these, in these, across these three films. Um, you know, Take Shelter, I was, my wife was pregnant. We were going, I was going to be a father. It was all theoretical. Right. Um, and, uh, and this obviously is, is quite the opposite. So I don't know. I mean, also though, I guess I grew up on those films uh, with kids at the center of them. I mean, there are no kids at the center of Close Encounters, although the scenes with his kids are incredible. Mm. Remember that scene in Close Encounters when he's in the shower mm. and his kids are just kicking the door open and oh. screaming at him? Yeah. Like, that's, that's an incredibly powerful scene. Like, yeah. You know, I never hear anybody talk about that scene. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's it. It's really just about my, my point of view yeah. uh, in life. Um, and so maybe when I become older and my son's in college yeah. you won't you won't get any more kids I don't know <laughs> then it'll be grandkid you know <laughs> alright alright great talking yeah, with you great talking to you as well, well congratulations again on the film thank you thank you that was fantastic oh thanks Rebecca wonderful interview Jason oh I always sweet. love your interviews oh I love you um, I just love you for being you no go oh, on love that um, so Midnight Special is out now it's rated PG-13 for some violence um, it's the pick of the week, so please go out and see it. Um, and that's it. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we have another episode out this week. Be sure to check, take, take a listen to that. Yes, uh, we have uh, four movies to review on our review episode this week. We talk about Everybody Wants Some, I Saw the Light, Born to be Blue, and Marguerite. So check that out. Uh, and thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There goes the binge!